Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. All right, thank you for your attention. We're going to head into our next session with Joseph Bailey. Joseph Bailey, I've known for a long time, since he was in probably junior high, and he's a dear friend as well. He is the senior pastor of Christ Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. He has six children and a lot of other stuff, and we're glad to have him here to speak on fatherhood and loss. Let's pray. Father, you know our many weaknesses and our struggles. You know the trials that we are going through and that we have been through and the ones we don't know about yet that we will still go through. The things that we have lost, Father, that we still wonder about and think about the sorrow that still remains. And Father, in all of these things, we ask for your comfort and we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a lot of things that we could think of when we talk about fatherhood and loss, I will end with what I think is the most obvious one, but may not be to you. But let me start by reading Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Now, you may, you may when you're reading the Bible, just let the words roll through without thinking about what they mean. What in the world are the rivers of Babylon and why are they by the rivers of Babylon? It matters if you're going to have any understanding of this psalm. Um, the rivers of Babylon are where the people of the Lord who were supposed to be in Zion by the rivers of Zion, were in captivity. And so they had lost their homes. They had lost the promised land. And when they remembered Zion, the promised land, they sat down by the rivers they weren't supposed to be by, and they wept. Let me keep reading so that we, now that we have the now that we understand the context and what's going on. Upon the willows, in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there, our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem... 
May my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Can you understand somebody ending a psalm that way? It's a pretty rough psalm to read from beginning to end, but the end in particular. What had they lost? They had not just lost their land, their cultural identity, their homes, their fields, their belongings and possessions, their savings accounts. They had suffered through the loss of their little ones. Those who had dashed their little ones against the rock, they call God's curse down on those wicked wicked men. There are a lot of possible kinds of loss that we might face. You might lose your job. You might lose your house. You might lose your whole country like they did. Maybe you lose your dignity. How does one lose dignity? Well, when you have to go and ask somebody for help, right? Isn't that kind of the classic? When, when, when you can no longer provide for yourself, not only have you lost your job, lost your ability, lost, but you've now had to depend on others and you've lost your dignity. Or at least that's what, that's what we feel like. Is that true? You can certainly lose your husband, your wife, your child, your mother, your father. But depending on what you've lost, what you do will probably differ what kind of loss, how you respond to it will probably not be the same if you lost a job and you hated it anyway, or if you lost your loved one who you were married to for 20 years. It's going to be a very different kind of loss and a very different kind of response is appropriate, right? The type 
of loss determines the type of response, determines the type of mourning. But there will be mourning for anything that is an actual loss. There will always be mourning. Maybe you lose your friends. I remember mourning the loss of friends when I was in high school. I, uh, I remember ticking them off on my hand, my best friends that I no longer had anymore. I had moved, they had moved, you know, it's just, and I had no friends, so I was lonely. And I mourned over that because of that loss. So now, <clears throat> I'm asked to speak on fatherhood and loss, and uh, In some ways, it's easy, and in some ways, it's hard, because I certainly know loss, um, and I think that I, I have my suspicions that Andy was asked to speak on loneliness because he's lonely, and I was asked to speak on loss because I have lost. I didn't ask. But Andrew's not an idiot. <laughs> what are the things that you have lost? Andy exhorted us to remember that we do face loneliness in various ways and at various times. I would ask you what you have lost. And if the answer is you can't think of anything, or, well, I mean, sure, there's, you know, my friends, uh, that, nothing to speak of. I haven't lost anything to speak of. Uh, you're, you're in denial the same way that Andy was telling us not to live in denial about loneliness. It's not helpful to pretend that you haven't lost anything. Or maybe a better way of saying it is, uh, if, if you have not given anything up for Christ, are you a Christian? There is loss for a Christian, even if that loss is voluntary. When you think of the parables, there's a bunch of parables that are about seeking the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, right? And what are you going to give up in order to get that? That pearl of great price, well worth the sacrifice, right? Sell everything else get that. Sell all your property, give, get rid of everything to buy the field where the treasure is buried. And in the end, you have the treasure and you've lost everything else. Loss is part of being a Christian. There's, there's no way around 
loss as a Christian. But that's not normally what we think of when we think of loss. What we think of is the things that we had no intention of giving up, that we had no thought of being a cost. We think of the things that God chose to take from us against our will. What were those things in your life? What will they be? Does that scare you? It scares me sometimes. And how will you respond when God takes your job? How will you respond when God takes your child? How will you respond when God takes your mother, your father, or your house, or your hobby? I didn't want to give that up. Well, it's time to say goodbye to it. How we respond is part of what I want us to realize that there are, there are wicked ways to respond and there are holy ways to respond to the things that we unexpectedly lost. Just like we can say that we're giving things up for Christ but end up bitter about them, you haven't given them up for Christ, right? If you're, if you're angry at God for the thing that you decided you would give up, well, it wasn't so you could get the pearl of great price. There was something else that you were after. So with, what would I say, involuntary loss, uh, there are right and wrong ways to mourn. And the first one that I want us to address, the first wrong way to respond is to not mourn. And that's because I'm talking about fatherhood and loss, that I start with that one. Because I think that's probably one of the most natural responses that a man has. Why? Why refuse to mourn? And why is that wrong in the first place? Why, why do I say that's the bad way, the first bad way to respond to loss? Um, let's answer the first question first. Why would you do that? I think the answer is pretty simple. It shows weakness. It shows weakness, right? And men aren't allowed to be weak. And so... No weakness allowed, no mourning allowed. 
Now, Andy did the work of searching the internet for uh, expert opinions, right, on, uh, on loneliness. Um, I stumbled upon an interesting discussion about weakness and, and men um, on a social media site. It was, it was very, uh, it was eye-opening to me in thinking about loss because um, there were two very different opinions on, uh, on men. It was mostly men talking. But uh, in, in the context of an article that said men are impossible to help um, and wondered why and pointed a lot of fingers at men, you know, for being unwilling to receive help, uh, people began discussing what is it that makes uh, a man unwilling to receive help. And an unwillingness to, to acknowledge need of help in the first place, or an unwillingness to be weak in front of others what was what was brought up that jumped out to me. And pretty soon you had armchair, not theologians, but psychologists, right? Because this was not a Christian group at all. Uh, holding forth with their expert opinion. But not just with their expert opinion, but with their very practical, hard-won life experience. And, uh, and there were a number of men in this group who ended up saying things like, listen, everyone who says that men need to be willing to be weak, uh, don't listen to them. I'm telling you. Don't listen to them. I tried it, and now I'm divorced. There were multiple men. You know, I, I saw my friend. You know, all the women say that it's attractive, a man who can, you know, be weak. But the moment that he showed weakness, he wasn't attractive to them anymore, and, they were, and then they were gone. Does that, does that scare you men? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not scared of my wife leaving me, but I want to be attractive to her. And so I guess I've learned something from these armchair psychologists. <laughs> you can't show weakness. It doesn't matter how much they say it's attractive to them. It's not attractive to them, so don't show weakness. Right. That's the advice that I stumbled upon among the millions of random words from millions of random people. It wasn't in the context of loss, but that was what was on my mind. Because every once in a while, my wife will ask me, do you, are you ever sad? Are you ever sad? 
Why would I? No, what, what do I have to be sad about? Why would I be sad? No, she's not just asking randomly. She's asking because we lost a baby. Am I still sad? Of course I'm still sad. I can't even talk about it. I'm not going to show weakness. Yes, I... Okay. Yeah, yeah, sometimes I'm still sad. That's how I respond. But how am I supposed to show it without showing weakness? I can't show weakness. I'm a man. And so you want to know why you won't mourn? It's because you're a man and you can't show weakness. Right? You know what showing weakness does? You have a, you have a gut instinct that it's not good. It won't be good to show weakness. It's not good, enough, uh, it's not good among other men because they'll kick you when you're down and they'll take advantage of your weakness and it's not good among women because you can't turn into a woman and so it's not attractive. So what do you communicate if you start with that as your assumption? You communicate that loss was nothing. I didn't lose anything. I haven't lost anything. That's, that is what you communicate. If, if there is no mourning, there is no loss. And so... You know, you lose your job and you're depressed for three months. But you don't admit it. But everyone can see it. Your wife certainly can see it. You're short-tempered. You're grumpy. You don't do anything. Have a hard time even filling out job applications, right? But you lose your child and you know you you cry for a day or two and then you uh, you move on go to work and you're fine I'm fine what does it communicate losing your job was a lot worse a lot more painful maybe it was but what does that say about you There's a right and a wrong way to mourn. Refusing to mourn is the first wrong way. It's the first wrong way. You may not declare your losses nothing. You must you must treat the thing lost with what it deserves.
Don't refuse to mourn. Now, I set up that whole, uh, you know, psychological thriller of what's going to happen if you show weakness, right? And I know some of you men are thinking, yeah, I want to know. I, I, I want... I want to, I see the need to, okay, I, you've, you've, you've shown me. Here the Israelites are, they're mourning, right? And it's, and it's inspired scripture. And Jesus wept, we know that. So there, there's something, I, I will grant that, but the, but the risks seem very high and the rewards seem very low for showing weakness. Can't I just mourn alone in the closet where I don't have to show weakness? Is that an appropriate way to mourn? I will refer you to Andy's talk on loneliness at this point. No, alone is not good. Uh, You don't want to mourn alone. You want to mourn even with others who mourn. One of the things that Job's friends got right was sitting silently with him and just mourning. They mourned with him. Yes, you are also seeking to encourage, comfort, cheer up people who mourn, but not at the cost, not at the expense of disallowing them from mourning, right? That's not helpful to them. Expecting them to simply be able to move on. No, going alone into your closet and suffering silently alone is not the manly thing to do. I want to read you two examples of mourning now from the same man. In God's word, we have one man losing two different children and, and mourning over them. First, uh, 2 Samuel 12, 14 through 25, we read about King David from the prophet Nathan, concluding his judgment. He says, however... Because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick. 
David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? When the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he has died, so why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. That's not where it ends. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. All the way through verse 25 where I ended is about how David responded to loss. The Lord took the child. But then when God gave a son... He named him Jedediah for the Lord's sake. What does that tell you about how he responded to loss? How he thought of the Lord after the Lord took his child? He's certainly not holding a grudge against God, is he? We'll come back to that think about that more but first another example from king david's life second samuel 18 starting in verse 31 and going into the next chapter behold the cushite arrived and the cushite said let my lord the king receive good news for the lord has freed you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you then the king said to the cushite is it well with the young man Absalom? I often wonder how, how much thought the Cushite had given to his answer. How long he had thought about what he would say 
on the way. His answer shows remarkable skill in saying what needs to be said. Listen to it. Cushite answered, Let the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then it was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourns for Absalom. Who's Absalom? Absalom was trying to kill him. Absalom was his son. The victory that day was turned to mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. So the people went by stealth into the city that day as people who are humiliated steal away when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have covered with shame the faces of all your servants who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. Now therefore, arise, Go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, surely not a man will pass the night with you, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. And David had been through a lot of evil from his youth until then. Think of the years of fleeing from Saul as just one small part of what he had suffered up to this point. Now let me ask you a question. Well, let me start by saying, for a number of years, I went every month and I preached in uh, our county jail. And I loved going to the jail and preaching, partly because nobody there had any idea who David was. They didn't know. I mean, occasionally there, there was one person in there who had grown up in the church and, or who had been reading his Bible for 15 years in prison. And, 
and he knew. But for the most part, nobody had any, any idea who David was. So pretend for a moment you don't know who David was. Okay. And, uh, and just think about this random guy. I just told you two stories from his life. And, uh, and ask yourself, how did David deal with loss? How did David suffer when he faced loss? It, it wasn't all alone, was it? It was pretty public. It was obvious to everybody what was going on. Certainly it wasn't not mourning. He mourned. Now let me ask you the question. Was David a man? David. King David. Was he a man? He was all man, wasn't he? Part of the reason that it's so enjoyable to preach to people who have no idea who David is is because then you get to tell them who David is. And you tell them about David and you ask them, was he a man? Just tell them a little bit about his life. Was he a man? Oh, yeah. They're tracking. They're tracking with this man. Practically everything about his life, when you go back and you read it with new eyes, you realize, oh, this is, uh, yeah, I can, I can see how guys in jail would relate to this dude. <laughs> There wasn't, a whole lot of, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of distance between his thoughts and his actions, was there? He kind of just acted. He killed people, committed adultery, a lot of, a lot of problems, a lot of sins, a lot of mess. But he was called a man after God's own heart. The Lord blessed him, not for his sin, but for his faith. We see that he dealt with real losses in his life. David was not a perfect man, but he was a man. And nobody ever doubted that he was strong. And so, 
Although his servants were afraid of him harming himself, isn't it isn't it wonderful how he responded to the loss of his first son? He mourned. He mourned and prayed. And then he got up. And, and do you remember what he did? It's been a little while since I read it. He went and he worshipped. He went and he worshipped. So, How should you deal with loss? First, you must mourn. You may not deny, you may not lie and say, it doesn't affect me. I didn't lose anything. It doesn't make you into more of a man, actually. If you think about even the, the common definitions, you know, of the greatness of a man or the inspiring things that you might hear, you realize it's always in, it always gets back to how they handled themselves in trouble. It's never that they denied or didn't have trouble. What makes the man great is that he had great trouble and he persevered through it. So to deny that you have trouble does not make you a great man. <laughs> David does not deny the sorrow of the loss of his child. But he also does not remain forever in that sorrow. He moves on. Now, Right there, there's a, there's a world of trouble. There, there's a world of danger, of disagreement, of anger between husbands and wives and others. And, um, you know, my wife asks me, well, do you, are you ever sad? And Yes, yes, dear, sometimes I'm still sad. Well, I don't see it. Okay, well, what's going on there? Well, I've moved on. Maybe. Or maybe I'm not willing to do the continued work that's necessary when you suffer loss as a father, as a husband, as a leader, which is to continue leading others through that hard thing. If you think of somebody like Stonewall Jackson, who was without fear on the battlefield, and as a good Presbyterian ought to, he simply 
pointed out God's sovereignty, right? But no great commander refuses to mourn when he loses men under his command. No great commander refuses to allow those who remain to mourn. No, no, a great commander leads his men through that mourning and brings them out the other side able to continue to fight. Right? Trusting God that he is sovereign. Inspiring them that the battle is worth the cost. That the loss, though painful, wasn't nothing, wasn't meaningless, but was used by God to accomplish what needed to be accomplished. Think about translating that into the sorrow and suffering of loss in your life with your family, with your children, your wife, your loved ones. And that gets a little bit scary, doesn't it? Can you actually say it was worth it? That, can you actually say that, that God is accomplishing great three things through our suffering? Do you believe that? If you don't believe that yourself, you're certainly not going to convince others that need to be brought through their suffering. David, David did the work of convincing not just the servants that God's will was good. And that the suffering was accomplishing what was necessary, but he also did the work of convincing his wife of that. He comforted his wife, Bathsheba, in that loss. So I say there's a, there's a world of danger there. Moving on, right? There's a, there's a lot of misunderstanding that can be had in that those two words, that little phrase, moved on. But what I want you to realize is that pretending as though there's no loss isn't an option. I keep harping on it because until you truly acknowledge and embrace that, you won't be able to do the real work of suffering and leading others through suffering. Until you mourn, you cannot mourn as someone who has hope. We don't mourn as those who have no hope is not some sort of backhanded way of saying we don't mourn. It is simply the statement, we do mourn, but we have hope. 
Do you have hope? The second story that I read from David, he had no hope, did he? He had no hope. And one can understand, if you think about the context, that certainly there was precious little to be hopeful about with regard to his son. He can't say of Absalom, I will go to see him, can he? His wicked son. His patricidal son. His murderous, rebellious son. When did David lose Absalom? Not that day. That day he lost hope. You see that? That day Absalom had been gone for a long time. But now now there was no hope for Absalom's repentance, return, reconciliation. No, David knew now. Absalom was gone. There was no hope. But where did David go wrong? David went wrong in losing hope. Yeah, that day there was no more hope for Absalom. But that was not the day to lose hope. Even uncouth, murderous, violent, bloody Joab saw the error of David's ways more than once. And this is one of those times. What are you doing? You are leading your people into despair. You are leading your people into shame. You're making them think that there's nobody to follow. And so if you want to know what the danger is of opening up the the floodgates of your heart, here it is. This is the weakness you're afraid of. This is what you don't want to become, and so you shut the door hard, tight. Keep it fast, you know, keep it secret, keep it safe. Don't let anybody know. There's pain. There's sorrow. Why? Well, because I don't want to be like David. I don't want to be like David here, anyway. Fair enough. How are you going to not be like David, but be like David where you ought to? How do you open up, how do you open up that those floodgates without it being to hopelessness. The weakness that will indeed drive everyone away, including your wife. You don't want that. She doesn't want that. Joab doesn't want that. Nobody wants that. You have to trust God. You absolutely have to trust God. If you don't trust God, your only two choices are 
shut it down or become hopeless. When you really see the trouble of sin in this world, when you really see the loss of your son to the schemes of Satan, when you really see you've, you've said goodbye to your father and he has not repented, When you see the danger out in the world and you're sending your children out into it because they grew up and whether you want to or not, they're gone. You see that and what are you left with? Well, either you have hope or you don't. And with David and Bathsheba and the story of their little one that they lose, David had hope. And with Absalom, he lost hope. So you have to have hope in loss. You have to have hope. How can you have hope when these are the things you've gotten done talking about? How can you have hope when Absalom, when there is no hope for Absalom? Hope in the Lord. Hope in the promises that he has made. Yes, there is nothing more sorrowful than the loss of a son who has rejected God. Now, who do you love more, God or your son? If you have hope in the Lord's promises, you know that, yes, my son has become an enemy, an enemy of mine, an enemy of God's, an enemy of all that is good. What a sad thing to have to say. What a loss. Father, your will be done. God, I hope in your promises. We don't mourn as those who have no hope. So as I bring this cheerful topic to an end, fatherhood and loss, and you want to know, what should I do? That was, ooh, uh, that was rough. Okay, man, but I don't know what I got out of it. (laughs) What should you do? I want to leave you with a mnemonic, some alliteration that might help you. I don't normally do this, but I had a long time to think about this, so. First is pray. David went to the Lord and worshiped. 
pray. Pray, pray, pray. The second is process. You, you actually do have to do the work of dealing with your grief, of mourning, that sorrow, that suffering. It's not permanent processing, but you must process. And the third is patience. My dad always used to say, patience, jackass. Patience. Patience. You have to be patient with those you're leading through sorrow, through suffering. So don't say to them, patience, jackass. Just repeat it to yourself. If your wife is crying again, say to yourself, patience. Patience. And then ask yourself, why am I tempted to be impatient in the first place? It's because I don't want to have to do the work of processing. I don't want to have to do the work of praying. I don't want to have to do the work of being a father in loss. Let's just pretend it never happened. You can't do that. You got to do those three things. You have to pray. You have to process and you have to be patient with others. One of the things that I've spent a fair bit of time thinking about recently is all the places where the Bible is clear about holiness that we're to have self-control, for example, right? Just to pick a random example out of the air. And, uh, and that's not something that's just for men. It's men and women, right? And yet, it's remarkable how self-control, the commands to self-control, is different for men and for women. And so one of the things that the scriptures say to us that applies in this idea of being a father through loss is that we are to live with our wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, the weaker vessel. Now listen, she has plenty of reasons that she has to be patient with you. Right? That she has to be understanding with you. Right? Okay. But it is very true that you have to live with her in an understanding way and be patient with her as with someone weaker. And so don't be surprised if it's harder for her and takes longer as though she were a little bit weaker. The Bible makes that clear. So be patient. 
the understanding. Say it once again. Yes. God is going to bring us through this. Yes. He is faithful. Yes. All of the promises are yes and amen in him. And you have to be able to say that by faith and believe that and lead others into that. When my grandparents, my dad's father and mother lost a son and then another son, one of the things that they said was that they were never more sure of God's love than when they walked away from the grave. But another one of the things that they said was that it was often harder for their friends than it was for them. And I don't mean that their friends had more sorrow. You know that the loss was certainly greatest for them, not for their friends, right? But what was, what was so hard? Well, I can, I, can pick, I can imagine a lot of things that I could fill in there. I don't have time to go into all of that or guess about it either. But what I want you to realize is that one of the privileges that you have as you suffer in the Lord's hands, in that crucible, One of the privileges that you have is that other people are watching. How can that be a privilege? It's like being a, it's like being a pastor's family. People are watching. That's not living in the glass bowl. That's not enjoyable. That's not a privilege. It's a privilege because it gives you the opportunity to not just lead your wife and your children through suffering, but to lead your friends, to lead the whole church towards greater faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a privilege. And it's also one of the hardest things in dealing with loss because you've made it a week. You've progressed. You've prayed. You've been patient. You have taught. You have been kind with, your, with one another, with your wife, right? You have made it to here. And the whole rest of the church is still back here. Do I really have to go back and drag them all through that same knothole? It was hard enough for me to get through it. The first time, 
And then with my parents the second time, and then with my siblings the third time, and then with our kids again, and then with my wife again. And then your wife goes to the library. Oh. It's been three months, and still people are finding out about our loss, and we're having to go back to the beginning and drag them by faith through the knot. I can't go through it again. It's hard work, isn't it? To suffer by faith with Christ. But he has called us to take up our cross and follow him. And to live as salt and light. And there is not a better opportunity to be salt and light than when, as a Christian, you suffer loss. That's when the metal of a man is tested. That's when his true colors are shown. That's when he has the opportunity to lead, to inspire. to proclaim God is faithful. And he has been faithful. Thus far he has brought me. <laughs> and safe he will lead me home. Right? O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn, that morn shall tearless be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look forward to that morning when all of our tears shall be wiped away. when all things shall be made new, when we will be united in glory with you for all eternity. And with those saints who have gone before us, Father, and what a joy it will be on that day. And Father, now in the meantime, we suffer in this world groaning with all of creation awaiting that day, that day of redemption. And Father, now we wait where there is sorrow, where there is still sin, where death still stings. But Father, on that day that we look forward to now here by faith. We know that death, death, that final enemy, will be cast into the lake of fire. 
what rejoicing there will be when all of your enemies are beneath your feet. And when Christ will be all in all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.